my equipment started breaking. All four of my oars would break before I got halfway across the Atlantic. Camping stove broke, my comm system broke. There are so many times that I just thought, I'm stuck. I just, I can't see the way ahead. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Well, here at Coffee Pods, we love an adventurous spirit. And this week we have a true adventurer for you. I'm really excited to introduce you to Roz Savage. She's the first and so far only woman to row solo across the world's big three oceans. That's right. The Atlantic, the Pacific and Indian. And I'm talking single skull rowing as in stroke by stroke across the three big oceans of the world. She holds four Guinness World Records and was appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire for services to fundraising and the environment. Ross has so many environmental roles, but notably she's a UN climate hero. Now, all this is quite an extraordinary achievement for a former management consultant who doesn't particularly enjoy exercise. Uh, This is a really interesting conversation. We talk about energy management. We talk about taking on audacious goals how it is that you push outside of your comfort zone and battle the, the talk in your head that says you can't do it. You name it, it's in this conversation. It's utterly inspiring and there's so many pragmatic takeaways to walk away with. Here's Roz. Well, Roz Savage, I'm so thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time to join us. Absolutely. My pleasure, Holly. Now, you're the first and so far the only woman to row solo across the world's big three oceans, the Indian, the Pacific and the Atlantic. I kind of want to understand what sort of tipping point moment or moments lead up to making a decision to do something like that. Um, you described 2002 as your, as your crunch year. What, what happened in 2002? Well, to sort of start with the first half of the question, I think there were two main pivot points that really led to that. And first of all, I just want your listeners to know that if you met me, you would not mistake me for someone who goes throwing across oceans because <laughs> I'm, I'm only five foot four. I don't know what that is in, in meters, um, but one meter 60, I think. And I'm not particularly athletic looking. And truth be told, I don't really like exercise all that much. I'm not one of these sort of square-jawed Uber athletes, not by any means. Um, So I do quite often get asked, like, why did this ever seem like a good idea? And then uh, I suppose the glib answer is, well, I was a management consultant for 11 years. And some people even at that point go, oh, now I get it. (laughs) That explains it. But actually, more seriously, there were were two key um, pivots that happened in my life. One was towards the end of my time as a management consultant, when I really had this sense that not only was I not thriving in that career, but I felt that there was a life unlived waiting there just out of arm's reach. If only I could figure out what it was. And so I turned to self-help books and 
read that classic, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Ah, it's a ripper. It is. And one of the seven habits is uh, begin with the end in mind. And there's this exercise where Stephen Covey suggests that you imagine that you're at your own funeral and you think about what would people be saying about you if you carry on as you are and what would you want them to be saying about you. And when I sat down and did that exercise, I think I I had believed that money was going to buy me happiness. I'd grown up in a family with not very much money and the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. So I totally bought into the whole Thatcherite thing that money buys you happiness. But when I did that um, funeral exercise, I said, oh my word, I don't want people to be talking about how nice my house was or (laughs) what great holidays I took or any of the things that money can buy. I want them to be saying, she tries to make the world a best place. She really lived the heck out of life. She was a good and loyal friend. I realized these things were much, much more important to me. So that was a bit of an aha moment, like, whoops. <laughs> <I've> been, <laughs> uh, while I've been climbing this ladder of success, I've rather leaned it against the wrong building. So that was a big wake up call. And then more quickly, the second pivot point was after I'd quit my job and done my first adventure, which was three months traveling around Peru, as a result of what I'd seen in the mountains there and the the glaciers retreating up in the high Andes, I became aware of this mysterious thing called climate change and really started doing a lot more research into what humans are doing to our planet and just had this epiphany. I was like, this is terrible. I I have to do something about this. I can't just stand by and watch this happen. But I really had no idea what I could do. I had no platform. I had no audience. And then one day this rather crazy idea hit me as a sort of end result of a whole series of serendipities. And uh, this idea took hold that I was going to row across oceans and use that as my platform to raise environmental awareness because, hey, I knew how to row in a boat <laughs> with eight other people on a nice flat river. So how hard can it be? So that's what I signed up to and spent seven years doing my solo expeditions. That's unbelievable. I mean, okay, firstly, that is a big thing to just go. So that's what I signed up for. And then off I go around oceans <laughs> 11 years prior to embarking on this sort of dramatic career epiphany. You hadn't done anything much more intrepid than braving the London underground. How do you actually prepare to take on a goal that audacious? Well, I did happen to know somebody who had, who was part of the inspiration for this because he'd rowed across the Atlantic um, with, with his mother. And when he'd first told me this story, it had certainly not appealed to me as something that I wanted to do. But what it did was it disrupted my idea of what sort of a person you had to be to have an adventure. Because up to that point, most of those adventurers seemed to be these ex-military dudes with beards. And (laughs) in my mind, that's what you had to be. That's what you had to look like to be an adventurer. And so to hear that someone's mum had rode across the Atlantic, I hadn't actually met her at that point. She is quite a formidable lady. But just to know that this was not the exclusive domain of guys with beards was really an eye-opener for me. So that was really a big part of it. So I phoned up Dan and said, hey, Dan, I'm thinking about rowing an ocean or three, and where should I start? And he said, well, 
luckily for you, there's an Ocean Rowers Weekend coming up in Devon in a couple of weeks. So I headed down to Devon, met an awful lot of ocean rowers. They were tremendously helpful. They all seemed to drink like fish. So <laughs> I ended the weekend with quite a bad hangover, but lots and lots of phone numbers that I was then able to follow up on. And everyone was just so generous with their advice. So I started reading books and putting together a campaign and came up with the, the mother of all to-do lists in an Excel spreadsheet of all the things that I would need to read, study, buy, train for, the whole thing, and just started to chip away at it one line at a time. I love that key piece there around how you broke the goal down into into its kind of small components because I think, you know, setting out to do something that audacious, it's really easy to be paralyzed by the scale of that goal. But even so then by, by the scale of the, of the to-do list. How did you kind of keep the momentum on the journey? Because I imagine as well, there were plenty of setbacks or or parts of the process that took longer than you might have anticipated. Absolutely. And I also think that lack of money can be the biggest undermining factor when you've got any lofty dream and then you look at your rapidly declining bank balance. It's very easy to panic and think, oh, heck, I really ought to get a proper job instead of pursuing this absolutely crazy idea. I think it probably helped that my first voyage I did as part of the Atlantic rowing race. So that gave me an immovable deadline. And I had just 14 months to get ready for that, which is not very long to do all the training courses, buy a boat, get it fully equipped, get your ocean hours in. So I almost deliberately kept myself too busy to really stop and think about it for too long because I found that when I did think about it, I got a bit wobbly. So (laughs) um, I'm a real believer in once you've committed to something, don't keep revisiting that question. Just say, well, heck, I'm at least going to try it and I'll keep pushing ahead until I absolutely run into a brick wall. And both before I got on the wars. And then once I did get out on the water, there were so many times when I thought, I just can't see how I'm going to make this happen. Like, you know, I've got no money or I'm running out of time. Or once I was on the water, um, my equipment started breaking. All four of my oars would break before I got halfway across the Atlantic. Uh, The camping stove broke. My comm system broke. There are so many times that I just thought, I'm stuck. I just, I can't see the way ahead. But you just, you eventually find something that you can do to fix the problem and move ahead. And I think so much of success is just simply not giving up, just refusing to quit. I love that. And one of, I mean, you've touched on there a whole bunch of the challenges. Reading about your journey, there were so many difficulties that you encountered. As you said, things were breaking down, systems weren't working, you know, all of a sudden satellites are not connecting. You name it, you were encountering it. I'm interested to know what were your biggest concerns heading into the voyage and did they actually marry up with what you found to be most challenging when you were out in the ocean? Great question. I think... <laughs> My my biggest fear was that I would do something catastrophically stupid that would be the end of me. Because I'm out there on my own. I don't have a chase boat. I was just really worried that I'd do something really dumb. You know, I'd fall overboard and hit my head and drown or, or something like that because there's very little margin for error when you're in that situation. And um, 
I hadn't anticipated most of the things that did go wrong, like all the breakages. I thought I was really super well prepared. Um, so that was a bit of a, a cause of indignation, actually. <laughs> Everything started breaking. And the ocean was very rough that year. It was, it was a, a, a very bad season. And so I, I think there was a lot of, but hang on, it wasn't meant to be this way. Come on, Mother Nature, I'm out here like as your champion. I'm trying to protect you. And you just seem to be beating me up every which way and breaking all my stuff. Just, just stop it. <laughs> I was really fighting reality for quite a while. And you can do that. But ultimately, reality always wins. And in the end, I suppose I had to learn a lot of humility. I had to learn to manage the things that I could manage and just to surrender to the things like the winds and the waves that I couldn't control. So that was a big learning experience for me. But really the the biggest challenge, which I hadn't really anticipated that it would be quite so hard, the biggest challenge was myself and the voices in my own head that kept coming up and casting doubt on my ability to do this. You know, that inner critic, that saboteur, that when we're in a very new and unfamiliar situation can suddenly can give us a really, really hard time. And I did battle with that little bugger in my head on a daily basis. And um, I learned a lot about how to manage that voice. I don't think it ever completely goes away. I think when we're pushing ourselves outside our comfort zone, it's can sometimes threaten to overwhelm us when we think of all the reasons that this can't possibly work. Um, but I've, I've learned that that voice is in many ways trying to help me. It's trying to keep me alive. It's trying to draw my attention to things that could go wrong. And, and I need to go, thank you, inner critic, um, noted. Now you can shut up and go back to sleep because I've got work to do here. So just zip it. <laughs> Let me get on with it. So if you really want an intensive crash course in personal development, spending three and a half months alone on an ocean will do it. I believe that. Because that's the thing that I find fascinating about what you did is, you know, uh, I think I'd totally agree with you. All of us battle, battle the inner critic on a daily, you know, weekly basis uh, with whatever frequency, you know, depending on the degree to which we're putting ourselves in front of challenges. But uh, I think one of the benefits you have when you're not confined to a rowboat in the middle of the ocean is that you can uh, connect with people, you can have conversations or um, change your energy state or do a lot of things that uh, by virtue of the environmental factors that are around you allow you to almost have aids or tools that you can call on in those tough moments. How did you do that when it was just you? What like practical strategies did you kind of deploy that helped you get through those really doubtful moments? Well, I suppose one of the good things about being there in the rowboat, so rowing for 12 hours a day and with a broken stereo, so you're really just there introspecting with your own thoughts pretty much all day, every day. It's kind of like Vipassana on steroids, is that you do get to really sit with problems until you figure them out. And... Um, I was glad that I'd read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance before I went out there because there's a, a principle in that about really just sitting with a problem and having the patience to work it through. And 
it also helped that before I went out there, as well as the environmental mission, I was at a point in my life relatively recently coming out of a marriage. I was fiercely into my self-reliance. So in a way, I should be careful what I wished for, because especially after the satellite phone broke, so I really had no um, communications at all. I was like, this really is down to me to just figure this out. And one of the most powerful tools that, I mean, I learned a lot, but I'll share one lesson learned here. There was, there was one day when I'm rowing along and my tendonitis in my shoulders is really hurting and I've got these salt water sores on my bottom that are really painful and I'm just miserable. And all of my inner dialogue is just around, I'm so miserable, I'm so uncomfortable, this sucks. <laughs> Why was this ever a good idea? And then that word uncomfortable just triggered this memory that in the run up to the row, I'd been saying to people, I really want to get outside my comfort zone to find out what I'm capable of. And suddenly the penny dropped and I went, oh, now I get it. So getting outside your comfort zone is by definition going to be uncomfortable. This is actually what I've wanted. So the fact that I'm so bloody uncomfortable doesn't mean I'm failing. It actually means that I'm succeeding massively. And so that helped me to reframe the whole thing, to see all of the discomfort as a positive sign that I was actually succeeding in my, in my goals. And in fact, it took me a lot longer. I would say it was 10 years probably after I finished the Atlantic that I look back at all of the things that went in quotes wrong, all the breakages and the injuries. I am grateful for every single one of those things that went quotes wrong because everything, if everything had gone as smoothly as I'd fondly imagined it would, I wouldn't have learned anywhere near as much as I did about what I'm capable of physically and mentally and kind of even spiritually in that, that life purpose sense. I just wouldn't have found all those inner strengths and resources that were absolutely called forth because it was the only way I was going to get through it. And I was actually able to be grateful for what had just been so awful at the time. It's interesting you mentioned the the reflecting back on sort of 10 years on from crossing the Atlantic because I was wondering, uh, I imagine it's the sort of accomplishment, firstly, that you spend a lot of time reflecting on, not only during but post. And then obviously you you are working with organisations and sharing your story all around the world and watching the way that people engage and interact with it. I'd be interested to know, have, have your takeaways or the, the key lessons that you share changed significantly over, over the time that's passed? It's interesting, isn't it? When we, we have certain stories, especially when we have the opportunity to, to tell them often. And I think I have uh, reinterpreted certain things. Like I started thinking a lot about courage a couple of years ago. So this was after I'd finished my rowing years. And I started writing a book about courage. Um, and because so many people had said, oh, you're so brave. And I thought, wow, it's interesting that that would be their interpretation. Because from the inside, I never felt brave. I was always much more aware of my own fear than of any kind of courage. So I started really questioning this. And I, I do think courage is often in the eye of the beholder. And so I was really 
examining, I was looking back at my story and saying, how, how did I manage to do what I did? What was my mindset? And of course, we are each the sum total of all of our life's experiences. So I wasn't going all the way back into my childhood. I was just trying to pick out some core beliefs that enabled me to keep on going despite the fear. One of my pet theories is that I used to think that you had to have the courage before you took the courageous action. And now I think I had that totally the wrong way around. That it's by feeling the fear, but taking the action anyway, that you start to rewrite your own script about who you are and what you're capable of. Um, So I don't think the fear ever goes away. Uh, Although I do think that I've certainly felt more capable of courage than, than I used to. And so then people go, well, if you don't have the courage before you take the action, how are you able to feel fear and do the thing anyway? And I think it's when we just get really, really motivated. For me, that was, that was my truth that when I had my environmental awakening, I was like on fire. I just had to do something about this or die trying it was not optional. And so I would have done anything if I felt it would serve that purpose. And I think it's when we connect with that purpose, that being of service to the world in some way, that we're able to, to find the courage to do the scary thing. So that's, that's been my story anyway. So now when people say, how, how can I do something like what you've done? I just, I think finding that, that motivation, that purpose is at the, the heart of the matter. Now, one of the things I wanted to pick up on is, and you've you mentioned a couple of times, you're, you're an extraordinary environmental activist. You've got more roles in the environmental space than I know how to name, but you're definitely a United Nations climate hero. You're very involved with a number of projects right across the environmental spectrum. I think often, and this is not exclusive to the issue of climate change, I think it's, it's a variety of the scale and the complexity of challenges uh, where we're facing as a global community at the moment, people sit there and go, I'm just one person. Um, what is it that I can do, you know, in my day-to-day life that could make a difference? And I think we underestimate the power of the individual contribution and sometimes fail to know how we can take our own step. You know, we think we, we put it in that it's up to other people, it's up to the leaders or it's up to this um, other group of people who've got a certain level of status or capability. Um, I'd be interested for your thoughts in kind of the, the power of the individual action, but also what is it that the individual can do to, to seize um, this moment and, and make a difference on the environment? Yeah, I'd love to. And especially because I used to be exactly like that. I used to be like, if this was serious, then somebody would be fixing it by now. Like one of those governments or corporations or those people who are supposed to have our best long-term interests at heart. And I I would say that certain countries, including mine, the UK, um, and I'm sure we can think of other examples, have shown recently that that leadership isn't there, that we can't leave it up to those people in power to do what needs to be done, that we need to start this at the grassroots. And I get that comment a lot, that I'm just one person, what can I do to make a difference? And there's a couple of things I'd like to say about that. The first one is... I use this metaphor of the five million oar strokes that it took me to get across three oceans, that one oar stroke didn't get me very far, just a few feet, but you take millions of tiny actions and they really add up. And every single one of those five million or so oar strokes was necessary. 
you know, you can't just skip them. <laughs> that every single one counts and contributes to the overall success of the journey. Even though I would say I've been an environmental advocate for 15 years now, I never know what difference I've made. And none of us ever really know. But we just have to trust that if we carry on being the change that we want to see in the world, that it is making a difference. So I think as we choose to do things like not using single-use plastics, like moving from a meaty diet to a plant-based diet, which makes a huge difference, uh, reducing our carbon emissions. There are so many things that we can do, but also word of mouth is the most powerful tool that we have. Each of us is a trusted messenger to somebody, like to our friends, to our families, to our colleagues. And that doesn't mean that we have to become terrible like environmental bores that just bang on about it all the time. I think our actions speak loudly. I wanted to take you back to the ocean for a moment, if I can. One of the things I was thinking about when you were talking earlier about you know, 12 hours of rowing a day, which is incomprehensible to my brain, um, is the, what you must have learned about energy management and how to actually, um, A, what your body is capable of, but how to, to train your, your body and your capability, but also to, to restore yourself, to be able to do that for, you know, day after day after day for, for hundreds of days to be able to achieve what it is that you did. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about what you learn about the energy management, the human body and how to, how to optimize for that level of exertion or performance over that period of time. I built up my training while I was on land to doing 16 hours in a day on the rowing machine. So compared with 16 hours, 12 hours actually felt like I was being a bit of a wimp. Hold it's on, 16 hours on a, <laughs> on a like sta- stationary rowing machine. That, that's, ne- that's actually probably worse. Mentally, that would be even more taxing. <laughs> it was awful. It was so boring. Um, I was doing it four shifts of four hours uh, with an hour off in between. So I'd started about lunchtime on a Sunday and finished at about breakfast time on a Monday. I trained for an Ironman on a stationary um, road bike and on treadmills, but you're next level with 16 hours on a, on a rowing machine. With many projects, so, you know, the entrepreneurs listening to this will relate to this, maybe even parents of young children might relate to this, that uh, the importance of the self-care and getting into the habits that we replenish ourselves proportionate to how much we're putting out. I've got some friends who have so much energy for brief periods of time, and it's like they've got two speeds, like they're in top gear or they're flat out. Mm. (laughs) And I've really tried to develop habits, daily habits that whether they're physical habits or sort of habits of contemplation, be that meditation or journaling. Um, also, naturally, I'm quite an introvert. Um, <laughs> maybe that's no surprise from the solo ocean rower. Uh, but when I'm doing a lot of speaking and being at conferences and having a lot of conversations, I know that I also need time to be quiet and be by myself to replenish um, so that I don't um, get burned out. Because Ultimately, life is a marathon rather than a, a sprint. And I know it's much more about like the 
quality of our life rather than the quantity of our life. But at the same time, I don't want to end up in a situation where I can't do my best work because I'm physically flattened. So I do my best to take care of myself. I think that importance of self-care, as you said, you know, is, is applicable to all of us, irrespective of, of circumstance, what, whatever it is that are our, our stresses and challenges and responsibilities um, requires us to ensure that we're in a position to be able to, to look after ourselves in order to give what's required to all of those things. Yeah, I, I think so. And of course, for a while, when you're really passionate about something, uh, you feel like you're flying and you can work. 18 hours a day and barely sleep and for a while and who knows maybe some people can do that that's not my superpower but I suppose one of the great things about getting older and there are many actually um, I turned 50 last year and never been happier uh, one of the good things about getting older is that we get better at knowing ourselves and knowing what it is that we need and knowing how to do adequate self-care and I know that I need a decent amount of sleep each night and that if I'm gabbing too much, then I end up feeling just a bit fried. So I think understanding, because like, nobody is going to give us the operating manual to ourselves. We have to figure it out. And I really discovered this with the nutrition, which I really explored so much during the ocean rowing years, both during my training and while I was on, on the water. And the further and deeper you go into nutrition, the more different opinions you find because people have done the work on themselves. They found something that works for themselves and they write a book about it on the assumption that that will work for everybody else. But that's not always so. Different things make different people thrive. And I don't think there are really any shortcuts for doing that self-analysis and figuring it out for yourself if you really want to optimize. Love that. I wanted to ask, you've touched on already how fortunate you were to have some amazing people to pick the brains of on the lead up to, uh, well, all three, no doubt, of your um, solo, solo rows. What I wanted to know was, was there a particular piece of advice that you relied on or was uh, incredibly insightful or significant in your process that made a material difference to, to how, the, how the adventures and how the challenges went? Oh, yes. Oh, I ran through a few options very quickly in my mind. Um, but the one that I want to go with is um, at the same time that I was on the Atlantic and really, really struggling, a friend of mine was doing a sailing expedition. He was doing a vertical circumnavigation of the world. So he was sort of going through the Arctic Circle and down to Antarctica. And um, he sent me a text message over my satellite phone one day when I think I'd been possibly whinging just a little bit on my blog. <laughs> and, um, and he said, um, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Just think about how it's going to feel when this is over and you've become the first woman to row across these three oceans solo. You'll be so proud that you hung on in there. So what I came to call this was the retrospective perspective. Hmm. that when I'm going through a really tough time, I time travel into the future to my imaginary self, however many months or years down the line. And I'm looking back at where I am right now. And I'm feeling really proud that I hung on in there and persevered through the challenge that I didn't quit. And 
I find that so helpful because there have been so many times when I've just been like, I want out of here. I just can't stand this a moment longer. Um, but I also knew that my future self would never forgive my present self if I gave up. And so I think if we can, I, I almost picture it like a stepping outside of my physical body and like whizzing myself into the future and looking back, then it really helps me to get a perspective that this too will pass. And ultimately, I'll be very proud that I hung on in there and carried on. Brilliant. And Rose, look, I'm so grateful for your time. I, I really appreciate the the well, openness with which you've shared. Um, and I found it absolutely fascinating learning more about the mentality and the preparation and the lessons uh, that come from the challenges that you've undertaken. I just think it's remarkable. There's a final question I wanted to ask it. And really for our listeners that are, um, well, wherever they are in the world, you know, inspired by what it is that you're talking about, what, what is the call to action that you'd love to, to leave them with? If you can encourage them to, to head out and do something in this moment, first thing tomorrow morning, whatever it might be, what would you like to encourage them to do? I guess one of my mantras that I found in a book called Conversations with God that I read many years ago, and if the word God is a turn off some people here, just please bear with me because I wasn't into God either. Um, but it's it's everything that you think, say, and do declares to the world who you are. And when I read that phrase, I just decided that I wanted to be proud of what it was that I was declaring to the world. Now, I know most people don't care about what I'm doing, but I just wanted to feel that I was sending out a message that I could be proud of, that I would act with honesty and integrity and to be useful in the world and to try and make the world a bit of a better place than I found it. So it's a fairly high bar, I guess, that everything that we think, say and do declares to the world who we are. But I really believe it because apart from anything else, we're constantly creating our own story about who we are and what we're capable of. And so whether or not anybody else is observing you, we're always observing ourselves. And the more that we show up powerfully in the world, we're constantly feeding that back into our self-concept, our self-definition. And on a more practical level, if this uh, interview has inspired anybody, and I, I hope it has, I would love to stay in touch. I have my website at www.rozsavage.com that's r-o-z savage just the way it sounds <laughs> dot com and uh, I have a newsletter and I post a blog once a week at the moment I'm really geeking out on complementary currencies uh, which I think are uh, have massive potential to change the world and I'm also in the process of launching a global women's network to envision a better future and bring that into reality. And that's called The Sisters. And you'll find that on my website as well. And it's open to anybody who identifies as female in the whole world. So um, that's going to be launching later on this year. So I would love to stay in touch. 
Sensational. You're not slowing down for a second. Roz, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on Coffee Pods. As I said, thank you so much for the generosity with which you've shared. Um, I'd have no doubt that uh, our listeners are going to take so much from your experience uh, and the insights you've offered today. Thank you. Well, thanks, Holly. Uh, Most of the things that I've learned in my life, I've learned by doing them the wrong way first. So if I can help spare anybody a few of the mistakes that I've made and fast track them for success, then I I feel like I've been useful. So thank you very much for asking some great questions. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life organization or community if that's a yes please take a moment to send us feedback shoot me a tweet at holly ransom leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods but for now until our next coffee break i've been holly ransom thanks for fueling your difference with me Thank <laughs> you.